My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm delighted to be with you guys this morning, uh, sharing in the Word of God with you. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it truly is a pleasure, and uh, I, I love you guys, and I love being able to spend this kind of time with you. So um, as we get started, I just uh, I wanted to uh, take a moment and pray, and then we're going we're to jump right in. Father, thank you so much for uh, this moment, this morning. Um, God, I, just, I pray for your spirit to be with us. God, my words are nothing, God, but your word is powerful. Um, God, the only way that this stuff means anything is by your spirit connecting it to hearts. And so, God, I just, I pray that you would um, remove (laughs) me from the equation. God, use me in the midst of weakness, and God, show your strength. And God, let your Holy Spirit be with us this morning in every way. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. This summer, I was on vacation, and I, I got to do something that was kind of interesting. We were in the great state of Ohio for our summer vacation. Any Ohio fans? Yeah. OH. All right. At least we've got a couple. Um, it was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and they decided they wanted to take a trip and go somewhere really exciting, so we went to Ohio. And no, I mean, the reality is that we all grew up there. It's where we're from. There's a lot of great memories there. And so it was, a, it was a joy and an awesome time to spend with them. One of the things that we got to do is we spent some time in um, Cincinnati and around there and just south of Cincinnati in northern Kentucky is this thing called the Ark Encounter. Has anybody been to the Ark Encounter? My wife has, which that kind of makes sense. A couple of you, yeah. It's It's fascinating. And so essentially what has happened is a group of people have gotten together and they have built a two-scale, full-size version of the ark from Genesis chapter 6. Now, Genesis chapter 6 doesn't give us all the details of the ark and everything, but it does give us dimensions and it does tell us what was filled in it. And it does. And so they've basically said, okay, we're taking everything that we can get from scripture and we are going to build an actual life-size version of the ark. You can walk through it. It's got all sorts of levels. I mean, it's it's a spectacular thing to behold, for sure. And at the Ark Encounter, you know, I, I did have to mention to my wife, I was like, man, this is really expensive. This is like theme park type prices. You know what I mean? So if you want to go there, be prepared to spend a little bit of money. But you can get a souvenir cup for $19.99 called The Flood, and it will get you refills all day long at the theme park of the Ark Encounter. One of the most interesting things that I saw when I was there was something that was a little bit not, you know, all, you know, happy and cheery, but it was basically this display that was kind of challenging the fact that we might have thought about or have taught about the ark wrong. And not necessarily that we've taught about it wrong, but like there are images that we associate with the story of the flood that may not be true to form to the actual story of the flood. And what it was was a display of lots of toys, basically, that depict the ark. And you know the ones I'm talking about. It's the big boat, and it's got the giraffe head sticking out the top, and everyone's, all the animals are smiling, and you, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, yay, yay. And the reality is that's not what, if you were there, that is not what you would have been experiencing. 40 nights, 40 days of torrential downpours and thunderous storms, 150 days the earth was flooded, and the Bible says 15 cubits, or just over 20 feet higher than any peak on the earth, and that everything on the earth that was not in the ark died. So when you start to think about that, happy Sunday, welcome to church. 
you start to see that the story is a little bit different if I actually enter into it. And I actually have to picture in my mind the death and the destruction and the judgment and the bodies floating in the water. The ark being lifted off of its perch by the floodwaters as people who made fun of Noah and his family desperately want to try and get in, but God's judgment is upon them. And so sometimes I think if we don't enter into the stories of the Bible, we don't see them for all of their breadth and all of their width. Sometimes I know I come to the Old Testament and I read it like I'm reading a history book. Like it's just a bunch of facts and causalities and this happened and so this happened and this, and I don't enter in. The, the best movies and the best stories are the ones with the characters that we identify with. They bring us into the story because either it's something we've experienced before or something that we can imagine experiencing. And, and so this morning, the story of David is inviting us into a very painful and dark moment in his life. And I want to encourage us to enter in and not leave the story flat on the page. And not just in this story, but in this whole section of Scripture. I don't want to leave it two-dimensional. I want to see it with all of our senses. We're given the gift of self-reflection in the narrative story of David. And, but that gift is only as good as our ability and desire and willingness to jump into it and to be honest with ourselves about what it reveals. And so my prayer is that we'll be able to do that this morning. So as we begin, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 19. I just want to begin with a couple caveats or just a couple things before we jump into the scriptures. One, I wasn't here last week. I was uh, away on vacation, and so I didn't get to hear Paul's message live, but I went back and listened to it. And I just want to say, his message last week was awesome. And if you weren't here, I just really want to encourage you to go back and to listen to it. He did such an incredible job handling that text, and it reminded me of the fact that the many times that I've been blessed by Paul coming up and introducing me and saying all sorts of kind and gracious and sometimes untrue things about me, and rarely does someone necessarily get to do that for Paul, and I was just thinking about how much I appreciated his message and him as a pastor and him as a friend, and so I just wanted to say that and appreciate him, and hopefully you guys can appreciate, encourage, and pray for him and his family too. He does an incredible job. He's a great pastor, a great friend. He cares deeply about us. He loves us, and he wants so badly and works so diligently to accurately uphold the Word of God, and I just really... I. I appreciate that, and I hope that you guys do too. Yeah. A little bit of honor is not a bad thing. So um, secondly, I, I just want to give a little bit of a caveat on this passage. Paul did this last week because we're dealing with some sensitive stuff and some sensitive materials. And so not huge stuff this week, but there is a little bit of um, violence and, and things in the passage, uh, a couple scenes that are not exactly PG. Um, so if you have smaller children, it might be, so I just want to give you a heads up on that as we move through it. It's not all like that, but there are a couple scenes. So with that cheery note, let's uh, enter into the story of 2 Samuel. So if, you don't, if you're not there already, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 19, and I'll try and get us up to speed. I got really bogged down in this story in the first service, and it really, 
I mean, I, I love stories in the Old Testament. I love talking about them, but man, it's not a short thing to do. So I'm going to try and move a little quicker um, this service. So if I'm sounding like the micro machines, man, I apologize. If you're getting confused on names, again, I apologize. But here's what I'll encourage you. The same thing that Paul said last week. This is a huge section of scripture that we're trying to get through. There's no way that we can totally do this justice. Go back and read it. This section from essentially 2 Samuel, I mean, all of 2 Samuel is incredible and into 1 Kings. It's just all incredible. I mean, it's the Bible. It's incredible. (laughs) But this section from chapter 11 to chapter 24 is just an incredible piece to identify with the brokenness, the humanity of David. And and that's kind of where we're at in this section. Where we left off, David's son, Absalom, had rebelled against him. For a myriad of reasons, things that were David's fault, David's inaction in a lot of different places in his life caused Absalom to, and this rift between him and David. And that's a lot what Paul talked about last week. And Absalom mounted up an army and came against the kingdom, and David fled with his mighty men and his warriors. And what happened at the end of last week is David's army has defeated Absalom. And though David had told his generals, please be kind to my son or to to the man, he actually says to the man Absalom. He's always referring him to the man Absalom, to the man Absalom. Please be kind. And basically what he's saying is don't kill him. Please, please bring him back to me, is what he's saying. Well, we know that in the story, Joab, one of David's commanders, does not take this to heart. And though other soldiers in David's army find Absalom hanging in a tree by his hair, and they're going, we're not touching him. We heard the king say, don't touch him, be gentle with him. Joab, a commander, again, in David's army, doesn't care. He takes three javelins. He stabs him through the heart. Then he encourages 10 of his armor bearers to join in in basically, you know, killing Absalom together, okay? So when, when the news of this reaches David, which by the way, uh, there, there's some debate about this in history, but because the Bible doesn't tell me this, I tend to think that David did not know that Joab was the one completely responsible for Absalom's death. In fact, there are things that David holds against Joab later in Scripture, and he mentions them by name, people that Joab has killed, because Absalom is not the only person, and we're going to see that more in this passage or in this story as well. He doesn't even mention Absalom. So I I don't think David knows this, but he does know that Joab was one of his commanders, and he did not bring Absalom back to him. And David hears of this, and he begins to mourn. And whereas before, when Absalom was rebelling against David, he always called him the man Absalom, Now it is my son, my son, my son. And as Paul mentioned last week in Hebrew and in this, when you repeat things, it's meant to drive the depth of the feeling in it. And this is one of these first moments where we get to enter into this story and try and imagine it, not just as words on a page, but empathize with David, empathize with even Joab. Because the first thing that happens, like the passage that was read a little bit earlier, is that Joab goes to David and says, you are mourning and you are acting like a king that has lost. And all of the people are mimicking you. They don't know what to do. We've won the battle. We've beaten the rebel Absalom and you're acting like a mourner who has lost a war. And Joab actually comes very strongly. It's almost shocking how aggressive Joab is with David, who is the king of Israel. Now, David responds to this 
But I don't think he forgets how disrespectful Joab was to him as another you know, thing that, that Joab kind of is not paying attention completely to what David is doing. So David is mourning for his son. And I can't help but think about the, the predicament that he's in. Yes, I've won the war. Yes, we've vanquished the foe. Yes, I'm going to be the king again in Israel. Yes, I have saved my people from the tyranny of my son. But even those words, that thought, the tyranny of my son, like, this is craziness. And I think in David's dream world in his mind, he would get to defeat the army of Absalom, but have Absalom back and have some level of reconciliation. The mourning that David is going through is not just my son is dead. It is the last 15 or 20 years of David's life where he has made mistake after mistake that has affected Absalom in terrible ways. Absalom is responsible for the things that he's done. Absalom has murdered. Absalom has rebelled. But David knows that he is a part of his son's sin because of the consequences of his own sin. He is mourning a life that was not lived in honor to God and the way that it affected other people in his family. He's mourning the finality of the loss of his son Absalom and the fact that he'll never be able to reconcile with him again. And I think about my own son. I can't help but think about it and go, what would I feel if my sin drove my son to rebellion and then I watched him do horrible things himself? And my only dream was that maybe he would come back and we could reconcile someday and then I am told he is gone. He's dead. I I don't know how I would move forward. How do I move forward like a victorious king when my heart is broken? And maybe you're in a situation like that right now. Maybe you're in a situation where in your family or in your relationships you feel like there's no good way forward, there's no right way forward. I've said this often when I look at Joab and David. Joab was right. You should be celebrating like a victor. You're letting down your people. But Joab was also wrong because he didn't care about the king mourning for his son. And David was right. He was mourning for his son, but he was also wrong because he wasn't doing his kingly duty of celebrating with his people a victory that they had won for him. And so as we enter into this passage in the beginning of 19, it's just a crazy slew of emotions that that come on us if we truly enter into the story. But David responds, like I said, to Joab, and he goes and sits at the gate at a place where a king would when he is welcoming people to celebrate the victory. And they begin to plan, how do we get back to Israel? Because they had fled Jerusalem, so how do we get back to Jerusalem? How is that going to go? And there's a bunch of quabbling among the people of Israel, and you got to think about it. They had rebelled against the king. They didn't know what he was going to do. Should we try and bring him back? He was a good king, but then we followed Absalom. And there's all this quabbling among the people, among Israel, to try and figure out how to do it. And so David basically kind of sends word to some people and basically says, hey, How come you haven't invited me back? And that kind of pushes them in the right direction. And his people from Judah, uh, the tribe that he is from, come out to the Jordan River and they want to bring him across the Jordan River, him and all of his attendants and all of his people, and they're there to meet him, okay? And Joab does this thing in basically verses 16 through almost 40 of 19, where if you look at your heading, it says, David pardons his enemies. And it's this very 
crazy thing in the world of kings where David comes to these people who have rebelled against him. Maybe you remember from last week, there was a guy named Shimei who when David was fleeing the city, he was standing on the other side of the road throwing stones at David and his men and insulting David. And this guy who was clearly a defector, clearly a rebel against David, clearly on Absalom's side and hated David, comes immediately to David when David wins the war and says, I'm so sorry. Please don't hold my sin against me. Now, a normal king in that day would go, uh, yeah, I know you're sorry, but also I hate you and you're dead. That's what kings do. David does not do this. David says, no, there's going to be no more bloodshed. There's going to be no more bloodshed. I pardon your iniquity. I pardon the things that you have done against me. And there's this passage then where Mephibosheth comes. And maybe you remember him. He was Saul's grandson who David had blessed in incredible ways earlier. And David asks him, Mephibosheth, I haven't seen you. Why didn't you come with me when I fled the city? And there was this whole thing between Mephibosheth and his servant, Ziba, who basically were kind of blaming each other for not coming. Well, David gets to the bottom of it, and essentially what is revealed in the text is that Ziba was the liar, Mephibosheth was honest, but David doesn't go after Ziba. Pardon. And so as David is coming back to the city, then we see that there's this other little mini rebellion that that pops up. And one of the things that David does in his pardoning and in his efforts to be gracious and in his efforts to bring the kingdom back together is he takes a man named Amasa, And I want you to remember, I know there's a lot of names in here. He takes a man named Amasa, who Amasa was basically the general or the captain of Absalom's army. So Amasa was the general who fought against David's men, okay? And he takes Amasa and he says, in an effort to unite, I'm going to take Amasa and I'm basically going to give you Joab's position. Now remember, Joab Joab had confronted the king Earlier, Joab, Joab had killed a man that David had tried to unite from Saul's army. So Joab has like got a couple strikes against him, and David is trying to teach him a lesson. And he brings in Amasa and says, I'm going to unite you guys. I'm giving you the command, Amasa. And the first thing that I need you to do is unbelievable. You're never going to believe this, but another little rebellion and uprising has already occurred. <laughs> so in the midst of trying to put it back together, Israel and Judah are quabbling to the point that there's this very, interesting, this very interesting thing that happens in the very beginning of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. So don't name your kid Sheba. The son of Bichri of Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. So essentially what's happening here is tribes among Israel are arguing, no, we should be the ones that get to bring David across the Jordan River. No, we should be the ones that get to bring him across. No, no, no. Why should you get more say in the king than we get say in the king? And at a certain point, this worthless man named Sheba just says, I've had enough with this and blows a trumpet. I mean, just picture being there blows a trumpet and says, we don't want David anyway, everyone with me. And then, yeah, it's like some sort of crazy mob and they run off and another rebellion starts in the midst of David trying to regain the throne. So first job for Amasa. Now remember, Amasa is the defective or defecting uh, captain of Absalom's guard that David has brought back and given Joab's job, okay? And he says to Amasa, Amasa, 
assemble the men, do it within three days because we got we to gotta nip this thing in the bud. We can't let Sheba, you know, form an army and fortify in a city and then come against us, okay? So Amasa, first assignment, Amasa takes a little bit too long. We really don't know what happened. If he's just not very good at his job, if the men won't listen to him, we really don't know. But then, interestingly, David, instead of sending Joab, he's very specific with his words. He sends Abishai. Abishai and Joab are commanders, captains, generals, whatever you want to call them, in David's army. And it says that he sends Abishai with Joab's men. So Amasa is not living up on, he's not holding up his end of the bargain, but instead of going, okay, Joab, go take care of it, he sends his Abishai instead of Joab with Joab under Abishai's command, which has not necessarily been the way that this has been done, okay? And to add even a little bit more drama to this, I think it's good to understand or really helpful to understand the acute family nature of all of this stuff. We've been talking about Joab and Abishai and Amasa and these different people and their their commanders and generals in these armies and everything. Joab and Abishai are brothers. Joab and Abishai are brothers who are the sons of David's sister. They are David's nephew. They're David's nephews. Amasa also happens to be a son of one of David's sisters. He is David's nephew. They are all cousins. And yet in this kingdom, they've chosen different sides. So you want to talk about family drama. You want to talk about the Maury Povich show or whatever, you know, the Jerry Springer show. Like this is family drama going on at its best, okay? And Joab is now under Abishai, his brother, which I'm sure doesn't make him very happy. He wasn't happy that Amasa got the command anyway. He thinks that's ridiculous. And so here's what Joab does about it. Let's pick it up in... Verse six of, uh, verse seven of chapter 20. And there went out after him Joab's men, the, Cher- the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. So Amasa shows up. He doesn't get the men together fast enough, but he shows up for the war. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And when he went forward, it fell out. Okay, so get the picture. Joab is there. They, they, they ride up. He, he bends forward. Uh, the sword falls out, and he's getting ready to greet Amasa. And then Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, which again, this is a little bit weird. Some of you have beards. If I grabbed your beard to kiss you, that would probably not be... Well, one, the next section here, you better get suspicious. If I grab your beard to kiss you, just know what's coming next. But Amasa, okay, did not observe the sword that was in Job's hand. So he walks up. Oh, I tripped. My sword fell out. He bends down and picks it up, grabs the beard like a greeting to kiss him. And then it says he stabs him right in the middle of the stomach and it says, it's very, I, I, the Bible sometimes gives you like, okay, this is the brutality of what's going on here. In, in verse 13, or I'm sorry, in verse uh, 10, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Job's hand, so Job struck him with him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. So what he's saying is this dude's a master of war. He knows how to kill people. He stabbed him in the stomach. And later on in the story, it says that basically what's happening now is that 
a mass is laying in the street, wallowing in, 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 his, in his blood. And people are stopping and looking. And a man stops and says, essentially, if you're not with Joab, you're not with David. And they pull a mass to the side of the road, they throw a blanket on top of him, and all the men just march on. Even though they knew what David had said. And so Joab, this is not the first time that he's done that, just to give you some context. Back in the beginning of 2 Samuel, David is defeating Saul's army because um, Saul had died, but Abner had set up Ishbosheth as a rival king to David, and they fought, and he was defeated. And David, in another pardon, wanted to bring Abner in. The general that Saul had had, the general that Ishbosheth had had, he wanted to bring Abner into the army, and he said, He's going to be one of my generals too. And guess what Joab did to Abner? He stabbed him, shanked, I heard it, shanked him. <laughs> he stabbed him in the stomach. So Joab's got a problem with stabbing people in the stomach. So this is what's going on while they're pursuing the rebel Sheba, okay? So there's one more thing that I want to point out in this crazy story, and then we'll kind of get to some application points and and bring this thing together, okay? So let's find out what happens with Sheba, because this stuff is just really, it's really interesting. And I I think there's an important point in here, too, because you can kind of see that some of these guys in war are really good at war, but they're not really good at judgment. They're not really good at making all these great decisions, even though they're really good at killing people. So they're chasing after Sheba, and Sheba has fortified himself in a city. I think it's called Abel um, at Beth Makkah. And he's fortified himself in the city, and Joab and Abishai and the rest of their army get to the city, and it basically says they're building up a wall or building up a mound against the wall, and they're battering it with rams. They're essentially going to take this wall down, because back then a fortified city meant that there was a wall all the way around the city. And this is one of Israel's cities, okay? So, so they're building this mound, they're battering the wall, they're going to take this thing down, they're going to rush into the city, and they're going to kill anything in their way in order to get to Sheba. And then in verse 16 of chapter 20, it says, uh, it says this, Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. So essentially, they're beating against the wall, right? Like a a bunch of crazed dogs. And a woman hops up on top of the wall and yells down and says, hey, what are you doing down there? You know, we used to have this thing where you just talked things out. We used to have this thing where if you wanted something, you could ask and we could see if we could provide it for you instead of just like knocking down the wall of the city and bringing ruin to all sorts of stuff. Sounds like like a little bit of wisdom. So then Joab takes a step back and he's like, oh, oh, yeah, no, no, we don't want to destroy anything. It's like, I think you do. And says, I'm listening. Here's the problem. You've got a guy in there who's a really bad dude. His name is Sheba. Okay, and then in verse 22, here's what she says. Uh, or maybe it was in verse 21. Uh, He says, that's not true. I don't want to destroy. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. (laughs) Okay. 
Then the woman went to all the people, and I want you to notice this, because I, I think sometimes we miss the places where the Bible speaks. And I want to say, I want to say this carefully. I think sometimes we miss the places where the Bible speaks very highly of women that God uses. And this is one of those places that could be very easy to miss. It calls her wise in verse 16, but then listen to what it says in verse 22. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it over the wall to Joab. And he blew the trumpet, and they went home. Now, what it doesn't tell us in there is what were her words of wisdom. But think about this for a second. Sheba had a contingent of people that were with him. He fortified himself in this city for a reason. And somehow she, with her wisdom, was able to convince everyone in the city that this was a better idea than what was about to come. Don't stand with Sheba. This is a foolish idea. Here's what he wants. He wants Sheba's head. What do you guys think? And it sounds like it did not take them long to determine what to do. I've seen the pictures like there's... um like super, super old, like thousands of years old, like drawings, pictures of like biblical scenes. And this is kind of a popular one to draw, probably because they're just intrigued by it the way that we're intrigued by it. And it's like, you know, you've got the traditional horses with the spears and they're riding up with the flags on them. And there's a wall with a big mound on it. And then she's like up on the top with a head, like throwing it down. Craziness. Craziness that ensues all because... David did not follow the word of God. And ultimately, some of this is where it started was Bathsheba. He committed adultery with Bathsheba to cover it up. He murdered Uriah. And now we are seeing the massive consequence and chaos that is going on in Israel because of it. And so we come to the end of that kind of section of scripture, the end of that story, the end of that arc, if you will, in David's life as we see the sword not leaving his home. We see chaos in his kingdom. And you may ask, okay, what do we learn from this? And the two characters for me, and you probably noticed it as we were going through it, the two characters for me that really stood out were Joab and David. And so I just want to take a, a, a few minutes and learn a couple lessons from David and a couple lessons from Joab. And, and then one lesson that kind of comes from contrasting the, the two of them together. And here's the first thing. All throughout David's life, he's constantly in this battle to follow after God. And the first scene that we see of him typically is David and Goliath, this incredible man of faith, this incredible man of faith. And yet here we see in 2 Samuel 11 through 24 all the consequences of his wrongdoings. And here's something I want to encourage you with. So the first thing is this, consequences for your sin or the sin around you does not mean that God is not with you or for you. The consequences for your sin or the sin around you does not mean that God is not with you or for you. Acts chapter 13, 22 and 1 Samuel 13, 14 both tell us that David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart and yet he did despicable and sinful things. So it kind of begs the question, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? What does it mean that, that, what does that even mean? And the word after in that section literally means down, down from, down upon, or down in. David was a man down in God's heart. 
down upon God's heart. Sometimes I think we think a man after God's own heart and we think about the pursuit of David of God. And there definitely were parts of his life where David absolutely pursued God. You look at the book of Psalms. David's pursuit of God is so evident, but yet there are moments in his life where you go, it's so clear he's not pursuing God. How can he still be considered a man after God's own heart? Well, it's a man down in God's heart. I, I, I think there's a, a, a larger meaning than just thinking of David running after God. I think it has to do with God running after David too. He's a man of God's heart. And if you're in this room and you're experiencing the consequences of your sin and you're trying to follow God, I want to encourage you with this. The consequences of your sin do not mean that God is not with you or for you. He is. He is with you. He is for you. What defines being after God's heart to begin with? Is it at some level of perfection or ability to uphold the law of God all the time? And the times that I don't, I'm not considered that and God is not for me. So often we run in our spiritual lives like that. Like if I'm doing good, I think God is for me. But if I'm doing poorly, then I'm embarrassed and I need to to not show my head and I I don't know what to do and God is probably not for me. I better do some good things and then maybe God will be for me again. That is not the story of the Bible. That is not the proclamation of the gospel. And that is not the story of David. He is with us. He is for us. So what does it mean to be after his heart? Proverbs 24, 16 tells us that though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets up. And the point is not that you have seven mistakes that you can make and then you're done. Seven represents a number of wholeness, a a perfect number. It means you you can make a mistake over and over and over again. The measure of your pursuit of God is what do you do in response to your sin and your failure? The person who doesn't love Christ, they stay down. They wallow in that sin. They become so discouraged that they can't do anything. They can't see anything else but their sin. Or maybe they just say, I'm giving up. I'm just going to live in it. I'm going to wallow in it. The righteous man, the man after God's own heart, gets up. He confesses. He repents. He moves on. There are a lot of ways to stay down, and my encouragement to you is don't. Get up. The consequences of your sin can be heavy. Get up. Don't lose hope. Don't believe the lie of the devil that God has abandoned you or that he can't be of you or for you simply because the consequences of your life are blinding at times. That's not the truth. And so what do we do? What do we do in these moments of consequence? In reality, what do we do in all the moments of our life? Because this one has weight to it no matter where you're at. And here's the second thing that I see in David's life. Do not grow weary in doing good, even in the midst of the consequences for your sin. Do not grow weary in doing good, even in the midst of the consequences for your sin. David does not grow weary in doing good. It's almost odd. When you see the passage in chapter 19, verses 16 through 40 of David pardoning those who have sinned against him, it's almost odd. It almost feels like it's not a kingly thing to do. And in fact, Abishai and Joab, his commanders, really act like it's not a kingly thing to do. And in fact, when, they, when David doesn't take enough vengeance, they take the vengeance for themselves. Joab more in particular. David does not stop doing good in the midst of his consequences. There are points in David's life where he does not act like God. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. But he does not use that as an excuse to let it define him. When he has the moment to act like God and show grace to someone, he shows grace to someone. When he has the moment to pardon someone who does not deserve that pardon, he remembers what God has done for him and he continues to do good even in the midst of those consequences. 
Maybe you're here and you're plagued by tension in your family. Divorce, broken relationships, bitterness, and on and on it goes. Maybe you even know that much of it is your fault. You're living in the consequences of your sin. Don't grow weary doing good. Don't grow weary following God. Don't grow weary putting one step in front of the other and doing the thing that you know God is calling you to do. If you need wisdom about what that is, seek it from your friends who know Jesus. Seek it from the leadership of the church. We love you. We're here to help you. Maybe it's a struggle with addiction and you know the consequences that are going on in your life and it's so hard and it feels like I should just go back to it. God is calling. Continue to do good. Don't grow weary in doing good. I wrote this in my notes and I I wrote down, read this section. And it's not because I'm such a prolific writer or any good at it. It's just because I want to be intentional about what I'm saying. Maybe in your marriage you have sinned against one another. You've been labeled by your sin. And even when you try to overcome it, one slip up and you feel labeled by your spouse once again. Don't grow weary in doing good. Keep doing good. Don't be discouraged. And to those of you who are married, I want, to ask you, I want you to ask yourself a couple questions. Are there labels based on mistakes that my spouse has made that I won't let them grow past? And to be very clear, this is not to suggest that ignoring repetitive and abusive behavior is okay, but rather examining the lasting roots of bitterness or unforgiveness in our own hearts. And on the flip side, when you're labeled based on your own sin, do you humbly recognize it as a consequence to your sin, or does it simply just turn to anger? Don't grow weary in doing good. Look at David dealing with his enemies. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing the things that God calls you to. Now a couple lessons from Joab, and we'll move through these a little bit quicker. This one was an interesting one that I just felt, and I thought, I I don't know if this applies to everybody, but I bet it applies to more people than I think. It's this. Pay attention to how you deal with those who wrong you, or those you consider your competition. Pay attention to how you deal with those who wrong you or those you consider your competition. And maybe this is just because I find in my heart like so much temptation for vengeance. And maybe it's not even, you wouldn't describe it as vengeance, but you would describe it as, it's not vengeance, I'm just standing up for myself. Like I'm taking back the thing that someone took from me. And let me give the real, real simple, right? I'm not talking about grabbing someone by the beard and stabbing them in the stomach. I only rarely think about that. What I'm talking about are things like I'm driving in my car and someone does something that I don't think is very good on the road and I think that person is a moron and my car is bigger than yours and maybe I'll just tap it out of the way. Or maybe the word that comes to my mind is ram it out of the way. What I'm talking about is there are places in our life where like when someone you feel like wrongs you, pay attention. And I'm not talking about your level of self-control. God has been extremely gracious to me through his spirit to give me good levels of self-control on my actions. But what's in your heart? What's in your mind? Are you having that dialogue with Christ that says, right now I don't want to continue doing good? God, right now, I need to confess to you that my heart is full of anger and vengeance and feeling like I should be able to get back at someone who did wrong to me. So when someone has wronged you or someone is your competition, think about Joab. Think about the ugliness of the path that it leads Joab to when he thinks it's his job to take those things into his own hand. When he thinks Amasa is his competition, 
he murders him. When he thinks Abner is his competition, he murders him. When he thinks he's been wronged in those ways, he murders him. Part of the reason he murdered Abner is because in war, Abner had killed Joab and Abishai's other brother, who's a very fascinating story. It says he was fast like a gazelle. And in the battle, he was chasing Abner. And Abner even yells out to him, hey, is that you? And I can't remember his name. It might be like uh, Asahiel or, or something like that. Like he yells out to him, hey, is that you back there? Turn to the left, turn to the right, stop chasing me. I don't want to kill you. Abner says this to him and he won't relent. But because in battle he dies, vengeance is the thing that Joab wants to take. Pay attention to how you deal with those who wrong you or those you consider your competition. Number four, loyalty to the king on your own terms is not loyalty to the king. Loyalty to the king on your own terms. Joab was very loyal to King David, but it was on his own terms. When David didn't do what he wanted him to, or he, he would take things into his own hands. This is like us saying, Jesus, I want you as my savior. I love the idea of the cross and you paying for my sins, but I don't know about you being my Lord. I don't know about the Bible being the final authority or the answer in my life. I love you as my savior, I'm not sure about you as my Lord. God's work, God's way is the only way or it is not God's work. Are there places in your life that you haven't submitted to Christ? Or better asked, maybe we should just ask where are the places in our lives that we have not submitted to Christ? And then lastly, I just want to say this. When we look at the life of David and Joab, and we contrast them. I feel like there's like, okay, you've got Joab here over on this side, and it's like, okay, there's a good example of like loyalty, but vengeance and not responding to situations right. Now you've got David right here, and it's like, okay, I know he's supposed to like be a good king who's a man after God's own heart, but man, how do I follow that example fully because, I, because he's made so many mistakes? David is supposed to point you to his own inadequacy, so that you see that the only true king, the only true satisfaction you will ever have is by making Jesus Christ your Lord, your Savior, and your King. He is the one who checks all the boxes. He is the one who does all the things right and correct. He's, if David is like just this small glimpse of goodness and grace because he pardons his enemy, God is the full picture. And his son, Jesus, is our Savior and our Lord, and we need to respond to him as such. And so the last point when I contrast Joab and David is this. You cannot run, outrun the consequences for your sin, but God's grace is so much bigger than your sin. You can't outrun the consequences for your sin. And God is a good God. He doesn't take us out of them. He, he leaves us in our consequences so that we can learn the lessons that we need to learn. He's not, a, he's not promising to remove consequences. He's promising to save your soul for eternity. He's not promising not to allow your consequences to teach you things. He's not promising health, wealth, and prosperity and peace for the rest of your life here on earth. He's promising you peace and hope and satisfaction for eternity. You can't outrun the consequences for sin, but God's grace is so much bigger than your sin. Joab, in the end, in uh, 1 Kings 2, is brought to death. David was very gracious with Joab considering all the things that he did. 
But ironically, when David is turning over the throne to his son Solomon, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he tells Solomon, hey, you know Joab, my commander in my army? You know what he's done. He killed Abner when I told him not to. He killed Amasa when I told him not to. He says, do not let his hair turn gray before he goes to the grave. Basically, he says, Solomon, Joab is going to be a problem. And the consequences of his sin are that he does not get to pass on to the next king because he would be a problem for you. We can't outrun the consequences for our sin, but if you look at the life of David and you look at the prophecy of Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he says, the Lord has forgiven your sin. You are going to live in these consequences, but the Lord has taken your sin from you. Why? Because David has repented David has turned to the the Lord. David has fallen upon the grace of God. And that's what we do. And as we turn towards our time of communion, I want to invite the band to come up. Communion is this incredible time in our service, and I love the fact that we get to enjoy it every week because we remember the goodness of the gospel. We remember the way that God's grace has been showered upon us. Even when I think about this story and I think back to um, Shemei and his reaction to David, he's the one who was hurling stones and insults at David. And he comes and he bows before David and he says, please forgive me, don't hold my sin against me. And I, David's not stupid. He knows that Shemei is not like maybe genuine fully. He just doesn't want to die. But David pardons him. The reality is all of us like Shemei follow other leaders. We align ourselves with other powers. We chase other idols, which is exactly what Shimei did when he went with Absalom. We choose to follow other things daily, and God is calling to us and calling us back. So maybe in this moment you should think about or you could think about what are the things that you've aligned yourself with this week that you've served this week rather than following God. Communion's a time in our service where we remember what Jesus did to, in order to rescue us from ourselves. We all, like David, like Joab, like Shimei, have gone astray. We all have followed other things. We all have chased idols but God. But God. But God, in his limitless grace, comes chasing after us in love. We see it in the life of David. We see it in our own lives. The two elements that are there on your chair, the the cup and the bread, in these two elements, we embrace our weakness and our inability and God's incredible grace and strength. In these two elements, we confess our complete dependence on Christ. And if that doesn't describe you this morning, that's okay. We're so glad that you're here. It's awesome that you're here. But if you wouldn't describe yourself as someone who has placed your total dependence in Christ and are following him as your Lord, then the Bible gives us a warning that communion would only be some sort of act of trying to earn God's favor, and we can't do that. So if you're here and that describes you and you're not sure if you know Jesus, I just encourage you to ask God to reveal himself to you in this moment. For those of you who do know Christ, I want us to take these elements Remember the body of Christ represented by that bread. He lived his life for us. His body was broken for us. And Take the juice and remember his blood shed for our sin on the cross. He was the king like no other king. The king who defied 
the way that the earthly king is supposed to be a king. He paid the ultimate price to love us, to be with us, to walk with us through our consequences and show us how to continue to do good even when it feels almost impossible. So let's celebrate him together in communion and then we'll continue celebrating in worship before our incredible God and King.